Good morning. That sounded good. That died out quick. That died out quickly. Some people really wanted to, and then you're like, I don't want to be the only one doing it, and so I get it. I, I get that. That's fair. Um, that's a that's a famous song. Like that's a that's a carol that we sing. That that it's around Christmas a lot. Uh, as we continue our series on carols this morning, we're going to be looking at that one in particular. We three kings. What's cool about it is it's not just a song that's sung at church, right? It's not just a church thing. Uh, when you look at Christmas albums, many artists have managed to, to wedge this in there. It's covered a lot, and we want to give you a taste of some of that right now. I, I love the Roberta Flack version, like the slow jam. Like, that was a good bass line in that. And just for the record, playing that last, the Bare Naked Ladies version, is the only time you can use the words Bare Naked of the Holidays from the pulpit. <laughs> that's, any other time, it's like, that's a misdemeanor, I think? I don't know. But this is a popular song. And the thing is, there's great truth in this song. Rich truth, substantive truth. And we're going to dive into that this morning. Reverend John Henry Hopkins Jr. wrote this. He was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania back in 1820. There's the Pittsburgh people. You're the wrong half of Pennsylvania, but I, at least you're Pennsylvania. That's We have that in common. He was a journalist, an author, an editor, a book illustrator, a stained glass window designer, because apparently he didn't have enough to do. But he was also a songwriter, and he was a pastor. He went to General Theological Seminary in New York. He graduated in 1850, and he became that seminary's first music teacher in 1855. During that time, he composed several hymns, and in 1857, he wrote We Three Kings. Now, his purpose behind this was he wanted to give a gift to his nieces and nephews, and so he put together a Christmas pageant for them, and he wrote this song as part of that. It was published in 1863 as part of his Carol's Hymns and Songs. So that's where it comes from. And what it does is it tells us the story of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to read you some of the the song real quick so we can understand where we're coming from. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And the chorus is star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. There's great substance to this song. But what's interesting is that we don't always treat Christmas in the substantive way that it should be. We like the neatly packaged version of Christmas, right? I get that. And I think because of that, we have a neatly packaged idea and perspective on Christmas night, 
right? Mary's there, Joseph, Jesus, shepherds, wise men, animals, angels. You know, they're all there. They're all there together. They're all hanging out. We have a tendency to romanticize and hallmark up kind of these moments. And Christmas is, is no different. Let me show you some pictures of what I mean. These are paintings and some, some things that you've seen throughout history. So this is the nativity, right? This is the Christmas. And look, everyone's there all at the same time. And it's wonderful. And Mary gave birth in a corner of a burned out building. And man, she looks well put together and looks, she looks great. Or how about, let's look at one more. Or this version. There's even more people in this one. And there are small babies with the weight problem flying above up top. And these random two naked guys that are like in agony. And it's like a battery-powered Jesus because he's glowing. Or this. When we think about the wise men, it's this. It's like this solitary journey of these three men with, you know, weird hats on camels following the star from the more you know in public service announcements in the 90s. Do, 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 the more you know. Like that's kind of the version of it. We think that everybody's there right when this thing happens, but here's the reality. Having seen my four children born, that's kind of a terrifying thought. It's kind of a terrifying thought. Giving birth, the moment is beautiful. The process is disturbing. <laughs> I remember with our, with our first son, uh, the doctor said at one point, he's like, hey, dad, come down here and see this. And my wife grabs my arm and she's like, don't you dare go down there. <laughs> like, if you've seen kids be born, it's like, we, we have seen things that can't be unseen. <laughs> and that's the picture of it. Like, like Mary's giving birth, surrounded by 15 people, 14 of whom she just met three minutes ago. There's animals in the room, and yet somehow it's this beautiful, quiet, noble moment. Having seen several births, they're not no, they're amazing moments, but I don't know that they're, they're quiet and noble. They weren't looking for this brand newborn. That's kind of what we think, right? That, that the wise men showed up at the exact right time, the exact moment of birth. They weren't looking for a baby that was born seven minutes ago. They weren't looking for this. This isn't what they were looking for. That is a cute baby. That baby must have very attractive parents. Or at least a very attractive mother. That's Mathis. He was born two weeks ago. He is. He is. I agree. Thank you. Now, my contribution, I mean, there's a, that's part of it, but I was also in the room, but that's about it. Like, that was it. So I'll, I'll make sure to give that to Bethany. But when we picture it that way, right, that's like the, the hallmark version of it. All of that stuff happened. It's true, and it's important that we know that. It's true, it happened, it's historical, but it didn't all happen at once. And when we tie these things together in a neat little package with a neat little bow by, by smoothing it out, we miss the richness of what actually happened, happening the way that it actually happened. It's interesting, there's only seven verses in the Bible that actually talk about the birth of Jesus, that actually describe it. And I think the reason for that is, while his birth is immensely important, immensely important, his, it's how his birth affected everything else that's truly transformational. This story is significant, and we're going to read it real quick as we dive into uh, it, it this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you can follow along with me. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, 
during the reign of King Herod, about the time some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. We're going we're gonna to do this morning. So we're going to look at the three main characters, the three main actors in this story. And the first we're going to look at is the visitors. Number one is the visitors. The visitors. They're called wise men here. They're called magi. They're called king in the, kings in the song, but they're called wise men or magi here. Magi literally means great or powerful ones. This referred to a, a priestly caste of Persians, or really more likely to astrologers. And they would be people who sought to gain insight into the world through the stars and the planets. Think more like astronomy now. Think astronomy mixed with spirituality. They wanted to understand the universe and what was going on in it by looking at the stars. They likely came from Babylon or from Persia. They're not Jews, because if they had been, Matthew would have said so explicitly, and so we know that they're Gentiles, which means just not Jewish people. And that's important because we're seeing that God's purpose and his mission to people is not just with the Jewish people anymore. He's using moving through the Jewish people to reach the nations. Now, what's interesting here is I feel like I'm gonna, I may burst some bubbles and I want to apologize. It's like, it's like finding out for the first time that there's no, well, maybe there's kids in here, so I don't want to say it, but you know, wink, you know, you'll know what I mean. There's nothing mentioned about the mean kings, nothing. That tradition dates back to the third century. And what's worth it is there's actually nothing mentioned about there only being three of them. That has sort of come through tradition because there were three gifts. But not only does it not say there were three, it's highly unlikely that there were three, just three. Because they had a far journey. Babylon is closer than Persia, and Babylon was 900 miles away, and you can't go straight across because it's a desert. You have to go around. It would have taken them months to go to Bethlehem. And they would have had to pass through areas that had, was known for having robbers and these, these marauding tribes of people and they were bringing valuable gifts with them. So they would have gone in a group. They, they traveled with a posse. They did not go by themselves. So why did they go? Why, why did they come to Bethlehem? Both Babylon and Persia had large Jewish populations. A widely held belief of that day was that the birth of great men was accompanied by astrological events of, great, of, of some sort, in some way. So the birth of great men was accompanied by some sort of astrological phenomenon. The Magi and those like them likely had come into contact with Hebrew scriptures and different Jewish texts 
that talked about the coming king and pointed to what the, the signals would be, you know, what would indicate his arrival. And we see that because it says they saw the sign. They saw the sign. We saw his star when it rose. They were looking for it. Not only did they, were they looking, they knew what to look for and they were looking for it. We don't know exactly what that star was. I mean, I wish I could tell you. We don't totally know. It could have been a comet. It could have been Jupiter and Saturn aligning or planets aligning to create a, a distinct celestial body. We know that that happened three times in 7 BC, and so maybe it was something like that. Maybe it was a supernova. Maybe it was an angel. Maybe it was the glory of God. We don't know. We don't know everything about this, but we know what we need to know. Because what's abundantly clear is that God used whatever it was that he, he did here to get the Magi's attention and supernaturally accomplish his purpose. We see foreshadowing of this all the way back in, in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 60. Verse 3 says, All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. This idea of God sending his rescuer, sending his deliverer, has been talked about throughout the Bible, and they may have very well been familiar with those ideas and knew what to look for. What we know is that the visitors saw something amazing, and they wanted to know more. They saw something amazing, and they wanted to know more. They were open to undertaking this journey, and they were open to the experience it was a long journey. It was a hard journey. They didn't exactly know where they were going and they didn't exactly know what they'd find when they got there, but they were open to the journey. They were highly unlikely people seeking a highly unlikely place, but they were willing to go. The Magi heard about this new king and they wanted to know more. The Magi heard about this new king and they wanted to know more. The question for us then is, are we open to the journey? Are we open to experiencing Jesus? What does it look like to be open? How can I be open? I think that's a fair question. I think it starts with, are we willing to ask questions? Are we willing to be moved? Are we willing to learn? Are we willing to say, God, help me understand you. Move in my life. Are you willing to take the next step of your journey, whatever it is? Is there an area of your life where you're resisting God? It's in an area of your life where you feel his, his poking or his prompting and you're resisting him. Is there an addiction that you're wrestling with that you don't want to let go of? Is there an unhealthy relationship that you find comfort in and you don't want to hear anybody say that this might not be good? Is there an attitude in your life that needs to be changed? Are you open? Because the wise men were. The second major actor in this is the king. Number two is the king. The king that's talked about here is Herod the Great. Herod was wealthy. He was a great administrator. He was a visionary builder. In fact, there's a style of, of masonry called Ashlar masonry or sometimes called Herodian masonry that, that is his, it's named after him. He built incredible things. Not he himself. I'm sure he made other people do it, but he took the credit for it at least. He was a gifted politician but there was a dark side to Herod, a pretty significant one. He was power hungry. He was neurotic. He was bitterly jealous. And he was paranoid. And I mean seriously paranoid. Like tinfoil hat wearing paranoid. Like this guy was crazy. 
He levied heavy taxes on the people and then wondered why he wasn't loved. He killed close associates, even at least two of his sons and his beloved wife. Anybody that got close to him, anybody that he felt was in a position to question his authority, anybody that was a threat, he took care of immediately. This is the guy who is king here. He heard what the Magi were seeking and he was troubled. He was troubled. And why was he troubled? Because what were they looking for? Where is the newborn king of the Jews? I think he was threatened. Because here's a threat to his power. Here's a threat to his authority. Here's a threat to his position. Someone already being called king of the Jews, somebody already being called king of the people that he is currently king of. And Herod doesn't play well with others. He's not interested in coming up with a succession plan. And it's interesting that in the text, we see a clear contrast between Jesus as king of the Jews, the specific title, and Herod is twice referred to as the king, but lowercase king. He's just, he's the guy who's here now. Jerusalem, we see, was troubled with him. And I think what that means is that they were troubled because they know what life could be like when Herod was troubled how he could be and the ways that he would act. And so Herod wants to find this threat. Herod needs to take care of this. And so he's, he gathers the chief priests and the scribes, these, these experts in the law, and he asks them about this stuff because the Jews have been waiting for the Messiah. The Jews have been waiting for the coming king. This has been talked about in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures since the beginning. They're, they're waiting for this. And so they come and they ask him and, and they, they explain it to him. In, in Bethlehem, in Judah, that's where this ruler will be. And what I find fascinating is that what we see here from the story is that none of the royal court, none of the scholars, none of the religious elite, and certainly not the king, none of them go with the magi. The most likely people to go see this new king don't go. The least likely people continue on their journey. And that's a sobering reality. They have missed the forest for the trees. They have been waiting for the king. The king has finally come and they missed it because it's possible to know all sorts of things about God. It's to, to know all sorts of things about Jesus and yet not actually know Jesus personally. Herod heard about the new king and he was threatened. Here's the harsh truth if I'm really honest, if we're really honest. I feel threatened by Jesus too. I feel threatened by Jesus too. Because Jesus upsets my status quo. Jesus challenges my life and the way I live. Jesus says, what is easy is not always right. Jesus says, you are not the center of your universe. Jesus says to me that there is a higher standard, that, that I can't just do what I want and be okay with it, that I don't get to be in control, that I don't get to dictate my life, that I don't get to dictate my, my fate. Jesus, if I'm honest, threatens me. Because I don't want to be different. I mean, I do, but I don't want to take that process, right? I don't want to take those steps. It, it's scary to do that. I, I don't want to always take risks because I don't know what that, how that's going to turn out. I want to stay where it's comfortable. That's hard. Moving was hard. Something as simple as that. You ever had those moments where it's like, God, I will do whatever you say is the, like under your breath underneath that is, as long as it's what I'm currently doing and you're cool with me just kind of dictating everything. 
You know what I mean? It's like, God, whatever you want from me, I'll do as long as we can agree that it's, you know, like good and I like it. It's like, that's, I think that's the state of our hearts. And Jesus threatens that because he's saying we don't get to determine our own good, that there is something greater, that there is a standard, that there, we are created for a purpose that we will never find on our own, that we are longing for joy and meaning and fulfillment that we cannot attain through our best efforts. I want to be king of my life. Do you feel threatened by Jesus? Here's the hope in that. What we perceive as a threat is actually a great gift. It's an incredible gift. It's God moving towards us through his son and sending Jesus to upset our status quo and our normal, not to make us miserable, but to make us new that we would experience a life that is fuller and richer than we could possibly imagine. The third major actor in this is the child. See, the visitors, the king, and the child. There's some real purposeful language here. In verse 2, we see, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And, and that's purposeful language because what it's communicating is that king of the Jews is not a title that's conferred or an office that is gained, but a position that is intrinsically Jesus's. Jesus just is king. Nobody makes him king. He's not crowned king by people. He's not received as king. He is king. And that's foreign to us. Because we don't have a king. We don't have a monarchy. We don't totally get that. But at this time, they, they would have understood king. A king had absolute power, had absolute authority. People found their identity in the king. They were provided for and cared for and protected. They found all that underneath the king. And that's different because we like to see ourselves as, as independent, and certainly our understanding of, of government is different. But that was their, their understanding of king. And Jesus comes as that king but a different king, a greater king, and a greater king that, that the Bible has been pointing towards. In verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 60, we see this. Vast caravans of camels will converge on you, the camels of Midian and Ephah. The people of Sheba will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshiping the Lord. Because what the wise men did, what did they do? Right? That's what we know about them. What did they do? They brought gifts. They brought gifts. In this culture, at this time, you came to power and authority with gifts. You didn't show up empty-handed. And these gifts weren't accidental. They didn't just grab whatever they had on the shelves. Like, and you know that feeling. You're going to somebody's house. Like, you got to go to your boss's house for dinner, and you forgot to get something nice to bring him. And you're like, oh, man, what do we have that we can re-gift? Uh, just go, I don't know, go look for something. And you show up, and you're like, hey, uh, we brought you uh, 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 this plunger because we know you love Mexican food. I don't know. We're like, it's what we found. I don't know. But there was real purpose to these gifts, great significance to them. The gifts show how important and how special Jesus is. Because what did they bring first? They brought gold. They brought gold. And for those of you out there right now planning your heist, it's fake. Because as much as we really like and trust you, it's like, do we trust him with thousands of dollars on stage? Because some people are going to start stretching like, I can make that stage. I can do that. But they brought gold. Gold 
is very valuable even now, but back then even more so because to get gold, to find it, you have to dig underground. It's very difficult back then. They didn't have the same kind of tools that we do. You'd have to find it and, and remove it and refine it. Throughout the ancient world, gold was used as a medium for exchange. It was used as a currency. And it was also used as a precious metal for making jewelry and ornaments and dining instruments, particularly for royalty and wealthy. Gold was a sign of status. Gold was a gift that was fit for a king. And the second thing they brought was frankincense. Right? Frankincense, it's this little... Smells good. You can all, I'll describe it to you. Mmm. It's potpourri. I don't know. That's the best I can do. Frankincense is an aromatic resin that's attained from the, these particular trees, Boswellia sacra. Say that five times fast. It's used in incense and perfumes. It's often mixed with other offerings. It's mixed with other stuff. And it was used in the temple. It was used in the worship of God, right? Because in the temple, in the tabernacle, the frankincense would represent the prayers of God's people ascending towards heaven. It was particularly significant that way. It also would have made that stable smell a lot better, a lot better. This was used in worship. And so frankincense was a gift fit for a God. And lastly, they brought myrrh, these little hardened nuggets that look like rock candy but will leave you seriously disappointed. A little sticky. This is another resin. It comes from a, a series of small thorny trees from the genus Comifora. There's my Latin for today. Which grow in dry, stony soil, which would have been all over the place. It's a natural blend of an essential oil and a resin. It's got these properties of a natural gum. And you can also drink it. You can ingest it by mixing it with wine, I guess, if you just are tired of the normal flavor of wine and you want to spice it up. <laughs> Literally, I guess. It's also used significantly, though, in the embalming process. It would preserve bodies after death. And it was used in ritualistic anointing after deaths, specifically with kings and prophets. This gift was fit for a funeral. What's powerful is that the gifts that the Magi brought, and I, I doubt they brought this on purpose, but God used these gifts to tie together this picture of Jesus and who he is and what he would, had come to accomplish. They brought gifts fit for a king, for a God, and for a sacrifice. Because that's who Jesus is. That Jesus has come to be king, that Jesus is God's son, is God who stepped into time, but Jesus is also the sacrifice for us. This encompasses Jesus' mission. God showed up here in the most unlikely way, sending his promised king, his rescuer, in the form of a child, in the form of a baby. And what I love is that Jesus isn't just the new king. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus isn't interested in sitting on Herod's throne for a time because Jesus is the perfect future forever king. He's the perfect king that cares for us, that protects us, that provides for us. He's the king who looks out for us, who knows better than we do what we need. He's the king forever. Do we enjoy the freedom of knowing that Jesus is truly king? 
Do we enjoy the freedom of knowing that Jesus is truly king? That the Jesus who wants us to know him and, and be known by him is the perfect king who sits on the forever throne and cares and, and loves and provides for us perfectly. Do we enjoy that freedom? Jesus is the very presence of God, the perfect sacrifice, the king who laid down his crown for the sake of his people. I love here that the Magi brings, bring gifts to Jesus, and that's what we celebrate. But the reality is that Jesus here is the ultimate gift. That Jesus is God's gift to us. Not only as the greater king, but as the perfect sacrifice, the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to people since the beginning of the Bible. God has moved towards us that way that we would know him. From the shepherds we talked about last week to the wise men we talked about this morning, some of the first people to recognize Jesus for who he is were outsiders. And that's good news for us because it shows the picture that God has moved towards us that we might know him. I love little nerdy stuff. I do. I wear the nerd with a badge of pride. I love, I just love those, those cool things. And, and one of the things that I really enjoy about this story is it's all about kings. All about kings. It's about the three kings who aren't really kings and actually, you know, there aren't really even three of them. It's about the king who will do anything to stay king. And then it's about the baby who truly is king, the king of kings. The wise men were inspired by Jesus. Herod was threatened by him. How do you respond? How do you respond? If I'm honest, I'm all too often Herod, threatened by what, what Jesus asks, asks of me, losing sight of what it means to know and be known by him. But here's the thing, I don't have to be, and you don't have to be either. We don't have to be that way. The journey of the wise men is really the journey for all followers of Jesus. It can be hard. It's long. We don't always know where we're going or how to get there, but, but we know that the end will be greater than we can possibly dream or hope or imagine. And so we can walk that journey faithfully. We can take those steps knowing that we may not know what's next, but God does, that God, the God who knows us and loves us. Folks, Jesus doesn't want something from you. He wants you. He wants all of you. And he came that, that you might know that. So we have stuff that gets in the way. For some of us, it's success and the thought that I don't need that. And for some of us, it's shame and the thought that I don't deserve that. And for some of us, it's pride and the thought that I've earned that. But the reality is that none of that is true. None of that is true. We do need it. The fact that our deserving of it doesn't even matter because God isn't concerned about our deserving. He loves us anyway, and we can't possibly earn it, but, but it's given freely. Jesus came to earth as a baby. The king of kings stepped out of heaven to rescue us. Herod and the teachers of the law and the scribes, I mean, they were waiting for this moment and they missed it. I don't want us to miss it. It's so easy for us to romanticize Christmas and get caught up in the hallmark version of it that we lose sight of why it really matters. I love how this one pastor says it. He says, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is not about choosing to follow advice. It's about being called to follow a king. 
not just someone with the power and authority to tell you what needs to be done, but someone with the power and authority to do what needs to be done and then to offer it to you as good news. That is what it means to be known and loved. That is what it means to know Jesus as king. To say, your will, not mine. Your future, not mine. Your truth, not mine. And in doing so, to experience the the satisfaction, the fulfillment that we desperately long to know.